And as we begin this morning, we want to begin by giving honor to fathers, uh, all the fathers in the room, but also those who maybe played a father-like role in people's lives. And before we do this, I want to say that I know sometimes this day is maybe hard for some that have lost fathers or maybe some of the other negative undertones that come with what this day means. And I just want you to know that if this day is tough for you, we have people that are going to be back in the prayer room at the end of service that would just love to pray with you out there and uh, just on the other side of the lobby and just want to be there for you no matter what you're facing this Father's Day. I want you to know that we're here for you. But we also do want to take a moment really quickly just to, just to honor fathers. And if you're in this room and you're a father this morning, there's so many things that we could say or that we could point to just to say thank you to you. But here's a couple of the things that came to mind. Number one, just for all the times that you've built into your, your child or your kids and taught them things. Maybe to the times when you woke up and you came to church to model that for your kids, how important it was, even though you didn't want to come because you were exhausted from the day before. Or maybe to the times when you've done everything you can to provide for them, to support them, to protect them. And then to the times where you've just modeled Jesus for them. Thank you for your role in your kids' lives. And I also want to take a moment to make a challenge to fathers this morning. You see, when a child sees a father that's proactively invested in them and their spiritual growth, it speaks volumes. And my challenge this morning for you fathers would be, for us fathers, would be to continue to be the spiritual leader of our home. Be the one that's setting the pace for spiritual things and setting the example for what it looks like to be a Christian. And not to be prideful in how we do this, but be gracious, be loving, be compassionate in how we do it. Because I can guarantee you that your kids will never forget it, and it's the best thing that you can ever do for them and can continue to do for them. And so, fathers, as you leave here today, there's going to be a treat for you that's going to be out in the lobby as you leave. Something small uh, and simple, but something just to tell you, thank you for what you do, thank you for being you, and thank you for being here with us this morning. Now, as we continue on this morning, there's a question that I have for each of us. Have you ever had anything come about in your life that's literally devoured your life or situation, or that's just clobbered you, or that's brought utter ruin to your circumstances? Or if maybe not your life, do you know somebody else who this has happened to that you can think of? And I'm reminded first, I was reminded first of Job in the Old Testament and how everything was taken away from him. All of his wealth, gone. Uh, all of his livelihood, gone. All of his children, gone. His health, as if he were dead and literally on his deathbed. Ever met a modern-day Job? I have, uh, actually. 
And I, I really couldn't believe when I journeyed through life with this person how every time that I went to speak to them the next time, something new had happened to them. Something even worse than before. Something more horrible that had happened to them since the last time that I talked to them. And it's almost as if they were caught in tidal wave after tidal wave and literally couldn't catch their next breath before the next tidal wave hit. Ever been struck by a literal set of tidal waves before? Or maybe seen it in a movie before? It's, it's the panic of all panics. And it's a, a time where maybe your life actually even flashes before your eyes and you don't know if you're going to make it through it. Well, this is actually fairly a pretty close and rendering picture of what happened to the Israelites. And in our text this morning, we're going to see how tidal wave after tidal wave they were hit, uh, and how these tidal waves were actually attacks of locusts. Now, this morning's minor prophet also shows us what would happen to the nation of, of Israel eventually by an enemy nation if they didn't return to God with their whole heart humble themselves, and change their ways. So today we're going to be in the book of Joel. Go ahead and open your Bibles if you'd like to. And we're going to be continuing on in our Voices series. And we're going to look at another minor prophet that also has a modern message for us today. And so as we're getting into Joel chapter 1, I briefly want to share with you uh, what it says in verse 1 verse 1, or verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now that's all it says. There's other minor prophets that talk about, you know, the kings that they ruled uh, and the time that they ruled in. And so we don't know for certain when the book of Joel was written, but I'm pretty positive that it was written before the Israelites are taken away by the Assyrians in 722 BC and exiled. Now, exile means they were taken out of their home, they were taken out of their land, and taken to Assyria. And I believe that this was written before the exile for two reasons. One, Joel is the second of the minor prophets. And after much study of the minor prophets and the way that they're ordered, I feel like the scholars or the theologians put them in the order that they did because it was basically a chronological flow of how it happened. And we see that this resonates with the fact that the last three books of the Minor Prophets all took place after the exile. And so it makes sense to me that, you know, if Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are written at the end and all these other ones are written at the front, that kind of has a chronological flow to it. The second thing is that this chronological flow and placement of the minor prophets as they were also makes sense why Amos, the next book that we will be getting to, uh, one book later, talks about the fact that locusts had attacked the land and destroyed it. Amos chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, I struck them with blight and mildew, then it says, locusts devoured your figs and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
So, but regardless of when this book was written, it doesn't change the meaning of what Joel was trying to say and what he was trying to get across to his recipients. So follow along with me as I read the, ch- the first chapter of Joel and as I explain some context and things to you as we read. It says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. You might be saying, well, what, you might ask? Well, let's keep reading real quick. The next verse, verse 4, is going to give us some clarification. It says, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So we see there has been a series of locust attacks that had basically come through and completely destroyed the land. And there was four different names or four different occurrences that are described in verse 4. Most likely at least two years in length. Well, why do we think it's most likely at least two years? Is because the lifespan of a locust was anywhere from three to six months. Some locusts more than that. But it talks about how you had first had, you know, the, the swarm of locusts, right? And then the great locusts. And then after them, the young locusts. And then all the locusts who ate everything after that. And so we see these different attacks of locusts that were hit and that, that took place. And later in the same book, another reason why I think it was a couple of years is because in Joel, later in this book, Joel 2.25 mentions restoring the years that the locusts had eaten. But no matter the amount of time that this all happened in, I want to pose a question for us this morning. An important question is, what exactly do locusts do? Ever thought about that? They eat, they mess things up. But what the word that came to my mind was, they devour. All growth. Gone. If you've ever seen locusts or watched anything, you know that that's true. And when there's a lot of them, it can be devastating damage. And if you read Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, you're going to see the first time, at least the first time that we know of in the Bible, that locusts came. It was during the, when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and Moses came to them and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no. And so one of the, the plagues of these 11 plagues that came on them was locusts. And it completely wiped out their current crops. Everything. And it says that this amount of locusts has never been seen again since, as the Bible states. But think about this. What happened to the, to the Egyptians in the book of Exodus was only one round of crops. Can you imagine? Verse 4 says that they were attacked multiple times by locusts. Multiple, several seasons 
of crops in a row. Far more devastating. I mean, think about that. Your crops being wiped out, not just once. I mean, once would be devastating enough, but multiple times when that was your livelihood many times and your food source. Then it goes on in verse 5 and it says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched up from your lips. Now Joel, he's talking to the Israelites in this verse, and when he mentions drunkenness, scholars will specify that he's more referring to their self-indulgent lifestyle and their turning away from God. So it's more than just that specific sin, but it's this way of life and this way of living and them turning away from God and doing it themselves in their own way. Verse 6, as we read on, it says, A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion and fangs of a lioness. I mean, so the locusts are kind of given the, this like description of, of a lion, and it's talking about the fangs of a lion. And it's talking about what does that look like? And basically, if you know lions, they devour all. I mean, they devour the animal. It's complete destruction. And so this lion is compared to not only what this lo- these locusts have done, but what this enemy nation's going to do to them if they don't return to the Lord. And then we, we, if we keep reading, verse 7 says, It has laid waste my vines and ruined, ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Now here is the most important part, is that Joel in verses 8 through 14 is telling the Israelites a few ways that they should respond in light of all this. So starting in verse 8, it says, Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Can you imagine everything in that time that day was you getting married? And could you imagine the one you're betrothed to, the one you're going to be married, all of a sudden, no more. All your future, gone. Like your life, as you know it, maybe would never be the same. You'd never have a life. You'd never have a family. You'd never have, I mean, can you, that's what's being talked about. Like this, this air being taken out of your lungs, this devastation of what has happened It says, grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Then it says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. 
Call the sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So this day of the Lord was near. There had been destruction. He's talking about this destruction that had happened, but how more of the same was going to happen if they didn't return to God. So he tells them, mourn. Uh, you know, I, I want you guys to, and this is, this is something that wouldn't have surprised the Israelites, but this is something that is more foreign to us. Like, it's not as much of a, a concept that we necessarily think about as much today. Usually when somebody dies, we mourn. But they had a lot more of an idea of, of what mourning meant. And he told them to mourn, to actually seek God and ask him for forgiveness and to, to go to him and to, to be sad and to be somber about what they had done. And then on top of that, he says to fast. Declare a fast. Go without food and seek the Lord in that way. And then the third thing he says to do is to summon the elders and to cry out, have them cry out to the Lord. And this same kind of language is restated in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And it says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, and we talked about this verse last week. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So it says, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call the sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders. So it's talking about this, this idea that of what, what's the remedy for how they can make things right is to call out to the Lord, to seek his face, to fast, to cry out to him. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord was coming. Destruction was coming. Exile was near. And if you read the, the rest of chapter 1, you're going to see that more of the same was going to happen. And I just want to say really quickly that a lot of times messages like this could be taken as like a downer or be taken as something that seems negative. And that could be, if we, in lives, we have a choice what we focus on. If we focus on the negative and if we focus on the bad, then yeah, we can have that kind of an outcome. But if we choose in light of the bad to see the positive and see the good and maybe even just see what God's trying to teach us in it all, it can make the hugest difference. It can be a game changer for the rest of our life. It can change the trajectory of our lives if we do this. And so I want to encourage you, even in light of 
kind of just the somberness and the hardness of this message this morning, I want to challenge you not to just focus on the bad, but on what we can glean from this, what we can learn from this, what we can apply to our lives. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it goes on and it talks about this army of, of locusts, but also this army, it, it really is parallel to the, the Assyrians and what it's going to be like. And it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. <clears throat> Let all who live in the land tremble. For the, the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Devoured. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At one side of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. Picture this. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. They, they march, each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They push upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes and heaven trembles. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Wow. So for all that's been told, they're told to mourn, to return to God, to ask him to forgive them of their sin. And we have the privilege of knowing that the Israelites would be destroyed by the Assyrians and exactly what happens when the Assyrians attack them? They didn't know this, but the locusts were just a pre-warning of what would happen if they did not return to the Lord. Now, the Assyrian Empire, really quickly, it's also thought to be one of the most powerful empires of all time. You see, they went in their time from using bronze weapons to iron weapons and war chariots. Now, this may not seem like much to us, but it was really a game changer. They had much stronger weapons and military. And this was the empire. This was the army that was bigger than any army that had ever been seen that it was going to attack the Israelites. One of the most interesting things that I learned in my study this week was that the, the exile of the Israelites in the north, 
by this locust-like army was actually done by multiple attacks. Remember how we read in verse 4? It'll be these locusts, and then it'll be these locusts that attack, and then these locusts, and then these locusts. I'd always thought that it was like one and done, that they attacked them, and they took them away to Assyria. I never realized before that it was multiple attacks. If you read, and this should be in your notes, but 2 Kings 15, 27 through 31, it talks about the reign of the king of Pekah, the king of Israel, and during his reign, how the king of Assyria, here it is the first time, took over, uh, they took over Galilee and the area of Naphtali and deported those people to Assyria. First attack. Then a little later in the reign of Pekah, so same king of Israel in the north, he reigned for 20 years. Second time, okay, the, the city of Damascus was captured. If you read 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, the Assyrians came in, they took over the city of Damascus, and all of its inhabitants were deported. And then there was still nine more years of one more king before, the, before they were completely exiled and taken to Assyria. And quick side note, if you want to read more about this and why they were exiled, you can read 2 Kings 17, verses 5 through 19. That should also be in your notes. And it's going to talk more about what happened to the Israelites and why. And it's really interesting if you have some time to read it later. But all this got me thinking, uh, what would the exile have been like? I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about what would it have been like to be exiled? Or if exile were to happen today, what would it be like? Have you ever placed yourselves in the Israelite shoes? I just want to unpack that for us really quickly because I don't think I even fully understood what it would have been like. But I started thinking through it this week. And first, it would have, it would have meant war and death. So try, just try and picture this this morning. Okay, seeing those closest to you that you love lose their lives. Try and look around the room or think of people in your life that you wouldn't want to lose and then think about them being gone. I mean, and not, not us just sending troops to another country like we do so many times, but think about the, the troops in the army coming to you, coming to American soil, coming to your city, and you actually seeing the fighting take place and happening right in front of your very eyes. And we're talking about this, what the unrest would have been like. We're talking about the panic that would have taken place. We're also talking about the starvation that would have taken place. Have you ever starved before? No. But can you think about that? 2 Kings verses 7, 17 verse 5 talks about how the final taking, remember I told you there were three times, the, the final attack was on the city of Assyria, or of, uh, sorry, of Samaria, which was the capital city of Israel in the north, and they laid siege to it for three years. That was because it was such a big city, it was such a uh, well-established city, but they surrounded this city with their massive army for three years, and they literally starved them out. 
Can you imagine, though, for three years feeling hopeless and feeling like you were losing all control and feeling like things were just creeping in on you and the attack of panic and anxiety and who knows what else would have been happening? And then finally, then just think of yourselves, try and put yourself in their shoes, finally surrendering, and imagine being pulled away from your home. Think of your home right now. Think of you're never going back there ever again in your life. All your comforts, everything you know, everything you've accumulated. Try to comprehend what it would have been like for them and what it would be like if it happened to us today. Also, they were enslaved, possibly even handcuffed, and forced to walk dozens or even hundreds of miles back to Assyria and probably whipped or beaten for doing anything that was out of line along the way. Then they get to this enemy nation, to Assyria, and have to work for somebody as a slave. No more freedom. No more doing whatever you do whenever you want to do it. And here's the real kicker. If you've got kids and you had family, can you imagine being split up from them? Possibly never seeing them again? Because they're somewhere else? A slave somewhere else? And you don't know the language that anyone around you is speaking? No longer can you practice your religion. No longer can you go to the temple or the synagogue or to church. No longer can you make sacrifices like the Jews did. Everything that made you a Jew, everything that made you, you, you're not allowed to do anymore. Exile was not good. But here's the deal. And I pause here a little bit because... I, I just thought and prayed about a lot of this this week, and it was just like, wow. I mean, this is kind of heavy, heavy what I felt led to share, and I hope that none of this would ever happen, but it's not necessarily that unlikely that we're living in a time and a day when the United States may not always be the United States. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope that nothing like this would ever happen to our nation. But I recently stumbled across something that I want to share with us this morning. Do you know that it's actually been proven statistically in many categories that Christians don't live any better than non-Christians? There is a recent book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ronald Sider that pretty much states just this. They took to researching several categories, like I said, the divorce rate, materialism and the poor, so basically how much people give, uh, sexual disobedience, racism, and abuse in marriage. You know what they found? Pretty much each of these percentages was the same inside the church as outside the church. And I don't know about you, but this should make us sit up and at least lean in a little bit and be concerned. Because just because we're Christians, just because we know Christ and we live here in the United States, doesn't mean that we will necessarily escape 
all the hard things that could happen in our life or in the life of our children and all the consequences and the wrongdoing. I mean, even the Israelites, God's chosen people, were not dismissed from the consequential reality of exile when they, when they didn't return to God and when they disobeyed him. The United States is such a strong country. So were the Israelites. I mean, could you imagine the United States tumbling? I couldn't. And, but the statistics of Christians and non-Christians being the same, it, made, it just at least made me wonder, what would God say to us today if he were right in front of us right now? Now here's the deal. Just like the time of Joel, I mean, there could eventually be great destruction or great ruin that could come to Christians or that could come to our nation as a whole. Now, I don't necessarily want us to focus on that, though. What I, what I want us to focus on, though, is that, okay, we do see the writing on the wall. We do see some of the same things happening in our nation today. What do we do about it? As Christians, what do we do about it? And I think some of the same principles and some of the same things that Joel said to the people then can apply to us today. We should be people who should see that. It should break our hearts. And we should want to mourn. We should want to go to God and say, Lord, change this situation. God, bring revival. Bring something new to our nation. When was the last time we fasted? And ask God to do something great for us and for our nation. When was the last time we called upon the elders, as this book is saying, and said, cry out to the Lord and ask God to continue to work in our nation in a new way. So it brings me to asking the following question. Is there any way that we need to turn to or return to God this morning? Now, maybe this does mean that we've fallen off the path. Maybe it does mean that we've walked away from the Lord and we haven't been to church in years, maybe, and this morning, somehow you're here, and maybe God is calling you back to return to him. And that's a good thing. And I hope that this time, and just a little bit, you'll take some time to maybe do just that. But maybe, just maybe, it's a little bit more subtle, or maybe a little bit less noticeable of a nature. Maybe you've been going to church, for years and years, and maybe you haven't missed a Sunday, even during the pandemic. No, just kidding. <laughs> but you've been completely, you know, living for God, coming to church, but you can't remember the last time that you went out of your comfort zone for God. Or maybe you know the Bible so well because you've read it so many times throughout your life, but Maybe you can't remember the last time you read it. Maybe it's been weeks or months. Maybe you can't remember the last time you really connected with God. Or maybe you can't remember the last time that you sought God in prayer and got on your knees and surrendered all to him or fasted and just got alone with him. 
And for any of these reasons that I've just mentioned, maybe it seems like you haven't heard his still, small voice in quite some time. And life has been loud, it's been busy, it's been exhausting, and evidence maybe points to the fact that you've been doing it on your own, on your own strength. Sometimes it's a slow fade, and we don't even realize that it's happening. And so this morning, maybe Joel chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 is for us too. And that's what we want to take some time to do this morning. That's why we got pillows up here, is just to give us a time of just repentance and coming before him and, and maybe even mourning, um, saying we're sorry or asking God to forgive us or to forgive our nation or to forgive Christians and, and just the, the things that are going on. Maybe it's, it's us saying, God, I want to I fast again. I want to give up food or comfort so that you know that I'm serious. Or maybe it's summoning the elders and crying out to the Lord, and, and we see this all over the Bible. We see the elders as such a prominent part of the, the Jews and a, and a part of the, the new church even. It's, this is in your notes too, but Exodus 50 chapter, or verse 7, Exodus, uh, or Genesis 50 verse 7, Exodus chapter 3 verse 16 are kind of some of the first examples of the elders. And then in Exodus 24, you see 70 elders are chosen to help them uphold uh, the land and to, to live out God's laws and to be the leadership. And that, again, in Numbers 11, you see that. And I don't know if you knew this, but there's actually 70, they're still in Jesus' day, where 70 uh, member Jewish Sanhedrin that helped lead the religious body of Israel. And then the elders or the overseers became instrumental in the leadership of the local church that Paul wrote in the New Testament. You see that in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. But when was the last time we called out to the elders and, and did that? And, and not just maybe for an individual need, but for our, our Christian nation or maybe just for you know, the things going on in our world today, would, would we be willing to be people in a congregation that would be willing to cry out to the Lord, to ask him to restore us, to ask him to restore our nation, our church, and to plead with God to do something new and to revive our nation? Psalm 51 verse 17 says, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A humble heart, a broken spirit, and a contrite heart. What would this look like, church? I want to close by reading a poem uh, with you that I found inspiring this week. It says this, it says, Last night my little boy confessed to me something childish wrong. And kneeling at my knee, he prayed with tears, Dear God, make me a, a man like Daddy, wise and strong. I know you can. Then while he slept, I knelt beside his bed, confessed my sin, and prayed with low bowed head, Oh God, make me a child like my child here, pure, guileless, trusting thee with faith sincere. Isn't that something, fathers? 
During these next few songs this morning, we're going to give you, and worship team, feel free to come forward. We're going to give you some time to turn to or to return to God. Not in an emotional or a fearful way, but if in your heart of hearts you maybe know that you've turned away from God or you need to return to God, or to maybe just bring the capital C church before God or our our nation before God, would you be willing to use these, these next few songs to wipe the slate clean, return to God, start fresh again, because we know that we have a loving God, that if we come to him, he's going to welcome us back with open, wide open arms. And all it takes is humbling ourselves, coming to God, asking him for forgiveness. I just want us to take some time to do that this morning. There's going to be pillows up here that you can kneel on and spend some time just praying with the Lord, and we're going to take some time to do that these next few songs.